tuning in. You got New York Update here, and we are online at newyorkupdate.org. It's Tuesday, September 18th. We are here on, on our new day and our new time on Tuesdays at 7. And when last we broadcasted, we were heading into the Democratic primary. We were hopeful for a progressive wave. And we got the progressive wave. There was definitely some big winners. One of the biggest surprises, I think, was that Cynthia Nixon against Governor Cuomo did not do better than Zephyr Teachout. She basically repeated the margin that Zephyr Teachout got, which was right about 34%. So there is a diehard progressive wing of the party that seems to be capped at about a third for the second cycle in a row. And although Cynthia Nixon was making a lot of progressive promises, the electorate went with Cuomo. I spoke to a lot of different people, and there was a sentiment that she was not experienced. She was just jumping into government, and she was using her celebrity status. I did go in-depth into her policies. They were pretty in-depth. They were pretty tight. Uh, She had consulted the right people. You know, her whole campaign was launched with a lot of help from AQE, which was a public education group that had really been fighting for uh, fair school aid. But it just wasn't enough. To me, the big problem is that the average typical voter, just the person walking down the street, they don't vote in in primaries, number one, because the overall turnout is so low. But those that do, the depth that they go into, it's it's really not that deep. I mean, most people walking down the street do not know that Cuomo's chief of staff or his right-hand man was convicted of bribery. And they don't even consider that, well, you know, Cuomo either knew that this was going on, or he should have known that this was going on. It just it just doesn't penetrate. So Cuomo had a huge war chest, and he spent a lot of it for this primary. He spent uh, upwards of $25 million, and he was blanketing the airwaves. I couldn't watch the ball game or the news without seeing another ad for Cuomo. And it shows that, you know, money is a big factor. You know, he can put his commercials on there, and a lot of it is a name recognition. And, you know, you really just can't fight that. Como thought that just having that money would scare everybody else off. But we had a progressive challenger in the progressive year, and it was it was kind of limited. Same thing with the lieutenant governor's race. You had Kathy Hochul who is Cuomo's running mate, win. But her race was actually surprisingly close. And Jumane Williams made it a real fight. He very easily could have won. Again, he's fighting the same problem. Nobody knows who he is. Probably most people don't even know who Kathy Hochul is. But, you know, if she's running with Cuomo, it's good enough. And so there's a lot of this inertia or entropy is a good word. She squeaked out a win. I think she won by maybe six points or something. And then we had a really interesting race for attorney general. And there we covered what the candidates were promising in terms of public education, in terms of charter school. Zephyr Teachout spoke about standardized testing. Well, it was a four-way race, and Leisha Eve got 2%, so she basically wasn't in the running. Tish James dominated. She got over 40% of the vote. Zephyr Teachout got something like 25% of the vote, and Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney got somewhere around 20% of the vote. And it was pretty much what was predicted, that Tish James was very strong in New York City. 
Zephyr Teachout did very well in what they call Big Vermont. Most of upstate along the Vermont border, uh, what they call like, you know, your Birkenstock liberals. And she carried those counties, you know, entire counties, one after the other. And she lost uh, pretty decisively to Tish James in Brooklyn. But, you know, the battle was fought in other places like the Upper West Side and Rockland and Westchester counties where Zephyr was on her tail but lost. And this is pretty interesting. Sean Patrick Maloney, who was a white male, definitely an Irish name, carried Western New York and pretty uniformly. So it's really interesting if you look at the results map, what happened. Tish James got a high concentration of voters in a very small geographic area, which is New York City. Zephyr Teachout got a lot of suburbs and Sean Patrick Maloney got the rural areas in, in western New York. So for future elections, it's really valuable for people to go through this stuff and see how that all worked. So pretty bad news all around for progressives. Actually, Tish James is historically a progressive, a really big ally of labor and the Working Families Party. But in this cycle, she seems to have thrown her fortunes in with Andrew Cuomo, and Andrew Cuomo definitely rode her, I guess you would say, you know, identity politics. Andrew Cuomo in the last couple of days and weeks was running ads that just was blasting Tish James's name even in front of his. You know, you would see a commercial that would be like, what we need is Tish James, Tish James, Tish James. Oh, and Andrew Cuomo and Kathy Hochul, you know, and paid for by Andrew Cuomo. So the governor was getting this particular attorney general candidate elected. It's pretty obvious why is because the attorney general could get seated and then turn around and prosecute the hell out of the governor, especially somebody like Andrew Cuomo. What are the current scandals that he has going on right now? He's got uh, the Crystal Run thing, which is a bunch of straw donors still moving. And you have the Buffalo Billion trials that are just going to be kicking in now. You know, and that's going to be used against him pretty heavily by Republicans like Mark Molinaro. So he was definitely throwing his fortunes in with Tish James. And, you know, it, it seemed to have worked like a charm for him. Moving on. The state Senate races, well, that was a big story, and that was a progressive wipeout. Uh, six out of the eight IDC seats were won over by the progressive challengers, including people who are Democratic Socialists, and they put that right out there. Jessica Ramos, Zellner Myrie, Robert Jackson, the lead plaintiff of the CFE case, which is the, the school funding, and Rachel May up in Syracuse squeaked out a win by about 600 votes. That was really interesting because nobody gave her a ghost of a chance uh, in the first place. The only IDC members that survived were David Carlucci from right here in Rockland County and Ossining, and Diane Savino from Staten Island, who everybody assumed would hold on to her position pretty comfortably. So there's going to be a new dynamic, assuming all of these progressive nominees win the, the general election. There's going to be six new Democratic state senators going into the state Senate, and it'll really be crucial to see in some of these other races upstate and around the state where they're trying to flip from red to blue. And right to the north of us is a great example with James Scoofus, because you have a Republican who's stepping down after many years, and the sitting assemblyman is running for that seat. 
So he's got a good chance. And if they can flip a couple of more red to blue, besides replacing the so-called IDC Democrats with true progressives or whatever you want to call them, true blue Democrats, it's going to get very interesting in, in New York State. And we might really see the New York Health Act. We might really see the DREAM Act. A lot more progressive legislation, including environmental, campaign finance, women's reproductive rights. Uh, you name it. I just have one more education item, and then we are going to join with our guest who has arrived. Uh, We have Cliff Weathers here, who is an environmental expert. But before we do, this is something that you're not going to see anywhere. You might see this if you read Chalkbeat, which is an education journal, but really, who reads that? Although this does affect lots of people. This affects anybody with school-aged children, all taxpayers, and This is uh, about a Board of Regents vote that was just held yesterday. What is the Board of Regents? Those are the people that make education policy for the state who are not elected but appointed, and they are appointed by the Assembly, which are elected officials. And what they voted on yesterday was two major things. One was penalties for opt-out parents, right, and penalties for schools that have high opt-out rates. We spoke about that last week. They kind of softened them, and that's the headline, is that they uh, took out the rules that would take away Title I funding, which is meant for impoverished kids within schools. And it took away the regulation that was going to punish schools with high opt-out rates. And these are the families that refuse to let their kids take the math and ELA tests for many different reasons. Betsy DeVos and the U.S. Department of Education was trying to get New York State to adopt really strict new rules that would punish schools that have high opt-out rates by diverting some of their Title I funding. And yesterday, the Board of Regents, under great pressure from parents and the teachers' union, voted to take that part out, although they still will have slight penalties or they'll have softer penalties for schools that still have high opt-out rates over 5%. Really interesting is that schools that have high test scores or even average test scores will not have to do anything differently. So if you're a high-performing district, you know, which is usually districts of privilege, they don't have to do anything. But if you're a low-performing district, which is usually districts of color or uh, districts that are in high poverty, and you have a high opt-out rate, you will have to spend some of your education budget to come up with plans to get parents to take the tests even though they don't want to, which basically means state-funded propaganda. The other change that they approved was there was a vote on charter schools, oversight for charter schools, and there is some substantive discussion about changing the metrics that are used when the charter authorizers are deciding whether or not charters are going to get renewed. Right, Every charter school has like a five-year charter, and every five years it gets renewed. No, it's pretty much automatic, and they're trying to introduce new metrics along with the fact that, yes, they use test scores, and, of course, they use graduation rates, but they're going to have to integrate other things such as suspension rates, such as absenteeism and chronic absenteeism, and these guidelines haven't been changed since 2015. 
So it is a sign of good things happening in the charter industry, although there was many charter supporters there that were trying to resist any oversight, and especially the metric of enrollment and retention. That means cherry-picking. Charter schools obviously cherry-pick. They never hit their targets for high-needs kids. Those are your English language learners and your disabled students and your kids in poverty. And they want really badly to keep it that way. So pretty interesting stuff. And I only wish that people were more in tuned with the Board of Regents because I have a couple of friends that went up to Albany to witness these votes and these hearings that are going on. They couldn't get in. There's a small room with a whole bunch of microphones. They had to sit in an overflow room watching on a monitor. They're trying to record everything. There's a lot of like talking in the regents room and in the overflow room. They can't hear anything. I mean, it's crazy. There's no transparency to this process. And these are the people making public education decisions really important for all of our kids. So screw that. And, uh, you know, hopefully that'll get better. So with that, hi, Cliff. How's How you doing, Jake? Good. We are going to pivot now. Uh, we have with us Cliff Weathers, and would you like to describe your titles? Uh, hi, I'm Cliff Weathers, uh, Communications Director of Riverkeeper, and i uh, been there for like uh, four years now, and uh, this is uh, what's happening in Rockin' County right now, what's happening in the Hudson Valley, uh, as far as the environment is uh, really critical to the future of the area, and a lot of news. Uh, yeah, lately. definitely, Cliff. Yeah. Uh, water is life, no doubt about it. Right. And for those who might not know, uh, Riverkeeper is a organization, a nonprofit that has yep. been around for decades. And their charge... 52 years, yeah. 52 years. Their charge is to look out for the river, look out for right. the Hudson River. And there's so many things involved with it that I learned over the years from Cliff. Um, but what we want to touch on are the really burning issues. So why don't we start with something that I think is in the news uh, as of late, and you're saying that the Indian Point nuclear reactor they is- just leaked uh, the second time within the second time within a period of just over ten days the reactor three is shut down uh, because of a leak in the reactor, which means that there is some radiation leak. The first thing was it was a water leak from an injector going a water injector going into reactor three, and that what they discovered was some boron on the outside of the reactor, which indicates that there is a, a leak. The boron that you see is indicates that there is radiation leaking. Uh, they fixed that. They shut the reactor down. But today, this afternoon, and we have photographs on it. If you go to our Instagram or Facebook or Twitter feeds you'll see is that there was a steam release today mm. and Indian Point 3 the same reactor was shut down uh, this is kind of unprecedented I don't think we've ever had a reactor had to shut down twice in about a 10 day period of time mm-hmm. ever this is just sort of evidence that these two reactors are just like any mechanical item like a blender or a car they've got a limited lifespan and, right. they, and they've passed reached that and basically they're being held together by, I mean, to, glue and to, duct tape. Glue and duct tape, just you know, to be hyperbolic about it, yes. But they are old and decrepit, and um, I mean, the, the plants just had their licenses were just extended to 2025, but they're by a contract. Indian Point Two is going to close at 2020, mm-hmm. uh, two years from now, mm-hmm. and Indian Point Three is going to close down in 2021. Hmm. It is a contract between the state of New York and Entergy and. Uh, Riverkeeper is a collateral watchdog. Uh, well, we're a collateral partner on this agreement because oh. we had several lawsuits, uh, one of which we had already won. 
against uh, Indian Point and its operations. Oh, so part of the settlement is that you're... Uh, we you're, dropped our lawsuits, yes. You have some kind of like ongoing role in oversight or reporting um, at least? Well, we're going to just continue to do what we have been doing. I mean, we're not making any money off this. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of people that say, oh, you got uh, Riverkeeper got $15 million, which is not true. We got $1, $1. After the lawsuits were settled, I mean, all that money right. we never recovered that, we, you know, we spent on out internal lawyers, external lawyers, legal fees, whatever. I mean, we do this because we're a nonprofit. Right. And that $15 million that everyone always says went to Riverkeeper is actually going to an environmental fund run by Entergy and the state of New York. Right. I mean, a nonprofit means that of. nobody pockets it. It right. goes back into the into yeah. the fund, so, uh, the operating fund. But can, anyway, can we back up? Sure. Because yeah. I, you know, I proudly represent people that don't understand a lot of this. So what you're talking about, these steam releases. Right. Because, you know, when you say there's radioactivity leaking, to me that sounds like they have those two big domes, right? And, right? and then there's the water around. Sure. And so what that sounds like is that there's actually radioactivity getting from the inside out. Yes. And then it's getting dispersed, hopefully, so that it's harmless. But, you know, that if it concentrates or if somebody's very susceptible mm-hmm. to it, they could be harmed. What is the steam release that you're talking about? Well, the steam release today is that a, a system failed within the reactor which allowed steam to be released. And there, we actually have a picture on our site of the steam being released. The radioactive content of that steam, we don't know, but this, this is something that should not happen. It is a very intricate system with the reactors, and I, I will tell you as much as I know. You have basically the fuel that's in the reactor, and that fuel has to be Water has to run around it. That fuel can't overheat. It has it's got to stay constantly it's cooled. Be constantly cooled, and also that water is used to generate energy, and that's what helps. Right. You know, it runs that's what steam runs turbines. the turbines. Right. Turbine. Right. So, anyways, um, it's very intricate. There's lots of water going in and out. The river is the source of all this water. They draw water in from the river cool and they really water. cooling yeah. water yeah but a lot of the water is used in just in the reactor which is a separate set of water that they use that is basically just used to cool and i cannot remember so the term. so a lot of this water doesn't actually touch anything radioactive like the radioactive rods or the radioactive yes but a lot of it does and a lot of so a lot of it is uh, like is insulated pipes that just passes through and cools sure. things down and then some of it does and when you talk about a steam release, it sounds to me like there was a buildup of steam inside and something was getting dangerous, and they just released it into the air, which is not the usual protocol. There, like has, been, there has been radioactive steam releases uh, there have at been. Indian Point before. Okay. We don't know. This just happened this afternoon. We don't know what, yeah, what, what, was what in exactly there. is going on. Right. The idea that this has happened in uh, Reactor 3, an area that is a radioactively contained area is worrisome. I mean, the Journal News article, they talked to the NRC, They talk, which is basically, in, the NRC is supposed to be the government watchdog, but what they basically are is there are a bunch of industry people that have been put in government roles. The revolving so, yeah, door. Yeah, the revolving door between government yeah. and the private sector. So there's all there's nothing to see here, folks, going on. But we'll find out a little bit more about what's happening. The, the big worry right now about Indian Point is when you start having these events, and there's been 30-some events since 2014, serious events, baffle bolts that hold the 
inner walls of the reactors together. Unprecedented amount of them uh, failing because they're just degraded by the radiation. They're this sort of stainless steel, very high nickel content, Mm -hmm. and they're just disintegrating. And I mean, the idea of the walls of the reactor that they could actually collapse and the water would not go correctly over the fuel leaves the possibility, and this can and has happened, that there can be what you would have colloquially we would call a meltdown but an event but a you know, nuclear event a we nuclear don't know. event so with that you know also in the news we do have risk here in new york and that's one of the reasons why why the plant is being decommissioned thank god but are you following what's happening with, uh, hurricane florence which turned out to be more of a big water dump than anything else and they're saying that there are nuclear reactors in the flooded area right. that they're very concerned well, about. Well, all we know really about the reactors that are there is that they have shut them down and that there's they're being inundated with water, Ugh. which... Which sounds like but shut, but shut, You know, something, but they've been shut down. I don't see right now... I'm not an alarmist. As many people say that we are at Riverkeeper, we try really hard not to alarm people. They're, I am more alarmed than I let on sometimes. What's happening down in the Carolinas right now is more, what's more serious is the amount of just toxins and coal ash and all sorts of different oh, yeah. fuel that, that is too. being that is being released into rivers and being released into the ocean. This is not an unprecedented event. Yeah, dirty. They know that this would happen. Mm-hmm. We have not protected our environment. We have not shored up. Yeah. This is going to destroy water sources for people. This is going to destroy livelihoods for people. The environment is not just about Oh, we like to have a clean, pristine area. This is about human life, too. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and, uh, so we, going and, on and yeah, and I'm sorry if I if I uh, you know came out of nowhere because sure, you know, no. who knows what's going on you know down another area. But I, I wonder if we had that kind of flooding around here. And I'm talking about even when the plant is decommissioned, you're still going to have that radioactive waste on site. And what would happen if? We had, you know, some kind of hundred-year flood where the waters just rose and they inundated, you know, that plant or that campus. Okay, there, there, there's two ways that the spent fuel is stored. There is the stuff that is in pools, which are in buildings, two buildings that are behind the reactors. These aren't lined pools. These are just like Olympic size, mm-hmm. not Olympic size. They're much bigger than that, but they're not much more different. They do have cracks in the concrete, and there is tritium and possibly strontium-90 and other uh, cesium, I can never think of the number, that are actually leaking onto the property at Indian Point. I don't know that if there was a breach with sea level rise or any with any sort of storm, that the that spent fuel would actually be compromised. I don't know that. But a lot of the spent fuel now is being put in what is called a dry cask, where they take several rods and they put them inside these big casks. Sarcophaguses. Sarcophaguses of of concrete. And you can actually see them from the water. Those are actually very high up on a hill, sort of (laughs) to the northwest. I don't want to, like, give too much detail for anybody. (laughs) You know, I don't know who's listening, but, you know, but they're there and you can see them. And those things should be safe in, like, for 75 years or so. But it is worrisome that there can be failures right now with anything that is like a sea level rise or storm surges, the the big worry is that the systems with the reactors, with the electrical system, that everything that feeds everything, that would become inundated and there would be problems there. The cooling I, I'm, and the I'm very system. concerned about yeah. the spent fuel, however. 
Those buildings that these spent fuel are kept in, they are not reinforced buildings. Those are center block buildings, just like any Home Depot or a Costco. Yeah, yeah. If a terrorist, like uh, what sh- happened in 9-11. Sh- no, but no, but I've discussed this before. Yeah. If they ran a plane into if they ran a plane into there, you know, and they could. I was and wondering if just about like would, you know, would, somebody just yeah. pointing an RPG at one yeah. of those domes. And it just yeah. seems like Pro- the, the domes would not be a problem. You could do that to the domes. You could uh, you could probably run an airplane into one of the domes, which are the reactors. Right. The big problem is where the spent fuel is. The storage. Yeah, this is this is right fuel that's been used up long ago. Right? It's still very radioactive, though. Right, but it's still right. So that that's a big problem. I mean, um, a couple of years ago, I was out with a uh, film crew that did a movie from France. And they rented a boat. It was not the Riverkeeper boat. They put me on the boat. And we got right next to Indian Point. Mm-hmm. And the movie, the English title of it was Nuclear Security, The Big Lie. You can look yeah. it up. Basically, we got right next to the plant. There were signs out saying, don't go past this area, right? Yeah. But we did. Right. You know, we got right there. And we stayed there for 30 minutes right next to the plant. Nobody came out. Nobody cares. Nobody really. And that's scary. what's really scary. And yes, you know, I'm a, I'm a former artillery officer, army artillery officer. I do know if somebody knew his coordinates and knew what knew his ordinance, yeah, knew what he was doing, somebody could do something. Now this is very worrisome. I, I'm yeah. not. I mean, this is this is the safety and security yeah. of millions of right. people in the in the greater New York metro area. And thank God we're decommissioning this plant, but we still have a lot of risk here. And some of the risks are natural disasters. And some of the risks are just the normal erosion of, of components over time that right. they haven't been keeping up with. And then you have this whole human terrorist thing angle where um, if there's some bad actors out there, these are real soft targets. It seems like they're not doing they're not doing even right. the basics. And, I, and I, was, I still say, I mean, I don't want to say we've been lucky. It is a soft target as far as I'm concerned. The idea is that we did suffer a terrorism attack here. 2001, they flew right over Indian 17 Point. Year, yeah, they flew right over, and they actually identified it as a possible target. Right. Indian Point and or other nuclear power plants in, like, possibly in the Boston region and so forth. Yeah. So Indian Point is very worrisome, and even when it closes, there's going to be lots of concerns, lots of worries. Just about the decommissioning of it, whether it takes 20 years or 60 years, what they're going to do with the land, who's going to pay. Well, there's a trust for... Entergy or the, whoever the company is that will own it at the time to decommission it. But for this to go smoothly is very important. So this is still going to be an albatross around right, our it's neck. Gonna a, it's going to be a financial for, for, battle. For the rest of our lives. For them to meet their commitments. And this is what I've been saying forever about nuclear and also fracking. It's like they took the energy a long time ago right. and they spent it and they used it. And now we're going to have to maintain and repair these facilities, and we're going to have to maintain this radioactive waste for our entire lifetimes and and well beyond. It's like a thousand years, you know. Sure. So, well, you know, it's ridiculous that somebody used the energy for something for so short right. term of a return, and you know, and we're going to be our grandkids are going to be right. footing the bill. Right. Just just to tell people, all the fuel that has ever been used at Indian Point is still on site, right. and it is still very radioactive, and it's still very dangerous. I think that's very important to tell people. And that's true with every nuclear reactor in the United States. I'm not sure of the feasibility, viability, or the ethics of having a Yucca Mountain, which is something that we tried to do in the United States, where basically everything would be stored and put off in in an area 
out but in the even, Southwest. They say but even Yucca Mountain would be a, a huge terrorist target. I, I don't know about that. I don't know. But we do have to find ways of disposing, disposing of, of this waste and not leaving it haunting these communities. These, in Cortland, in Buchanan, and all these towns that are around there, the culture is going to change there. I mean, there's a lot of workers there, but in 15 years, people are going to just see... Indian Point yeah, is the, being something that haunts them. That the is, risk, yeah, it's going to be like the Gowanus sure. Canal or one of these other super fun. So we got to we got to figure out. You know, a lot of what Riverkeeper is doing right now is we're working with those communities to make sure that decommissioning goes well and trying to work with solutions because yeah. we're not we are not giving up on the communities in the area. Which you know, I I don't know if Entergy is, but it seems like the NRC doesn't care too much right. about the yeah about the, the, area. the sustainability and the economic viability. Right. It goes on and on. So so let's shift topics. I don't want to direct it because you probably know better than me what is most burning. But, um, you know, in the past, we've seen Riverkeeper's presentations on the bomb trains. We've seen presentations on fracking. Most recently, you made, uh, Riverkeeper made a presentation to some local groups about the Seagates, about the movable Seagates. The storm surge barriers. Right. This is actually... Um uh, something that caught everyone by surprise in the su- in the early summer. If there is anything that will actually kill the Hudson River, it is the storm surge barriers that the Army Corps of Engineers is proposing. They've got several alternatives. One of them is not to do anything, and one of them is to do land-based alternatives. The rest of them are to put up basically these walls with gates. And these don't protect from sea level rise. They don't protect you from climate change. They all they do is they they protect small areas at the expense so, at the expense of other areas. Yeah. Let me explain a few things about this, which is very important. A lot of times we talk about the environmental effect, and of course, this is going to make the Hudson River into like a big bathtub of our own feces and waste. Because even though we have got a lot more money from the state for uh, wastewater Treatment. infrastructure. Yeah. It's still, when we have a large rainfall, you can't go swimming, you can't go kayaking in Nyack because there's so much of our own runoff stuff yeah, over- in the water. You can get yourself sick. The Hudson River, in some places, and when it's dry, it's actually pretty safe to swim. I swim at places I'm not allowed to swim. I swim up in Haverstry, I swim, and I know it's safe because... You know, we do, uh, you do the testing. We do testing. We do yeah. uh, testing for enterococcus, which is an indicator for all sorts of other viruses or pathogens that might be in the water. Now, the idea is that if you have these sea gates, you're going to choke off the tidal flow. You're going to have a very small gate, and you're going to have these big walls. And basically, with the exception of a small area where ships could go in and those gates would close nothing's going to move back and forth. So it's going to restrict the tidal flow so we'll have more contaminants. The sediment won't be able to move out of the river. Uh, fish won't be able to come back, migrate in and out of the river for for spawning or foraging or whatever they're doing. They're not going to be able to realize that they're going into this, they have to go to this little tiny area to get in this river. This changes mm-hmm. generations upon generations of, of fish that go across like Jamaica Bay and find their way into the river. So you're going to see a lot less fish. You're going to see a lot of environmental problems caused by this. What else it can cause is what's called um, deflection flooding or uh, back flooding. And let me explain what that is to you. When you put these when you put these up, these walls up, the water has to go somewhere. Just because you got a wall up, 
The water's going somewhere. So if you're not one of the protected communities and you're out on Long Island and that and they've got a big seagate and the wall's closed and there's some that water that's supposed that's pushing up against it has to go somewhere. It may go someplace on Long Island. Right. It just keeps going down. It just the keeps line. going down or on, on the Jersey Shore. Second problem that we would have up here is something called back flooding. If you're paying attention to what's happening in Florence, Hurricane uh, yeah. Florence, yeah, another name. But Hurricane Florence is that the, these rivers are becoming inundated and they're flooding and people are having their houses flooded. When people think of hurricanes, they think of the wind and the, and yeah. the rain, but they don't think of the just about the, the amount of water, rain and flooding and just the back flooding that actually happens naturally. If you cut off the river... If you have those gates closed, the amount of back flooding, the water when it rains in the Hudson Valley, when all this stuff is and the, the regular water is coming down, and it's much more than it is, it's got to, and those gates are closed. That water's got to go somewhere. So if we're not protecting our own shorelines, all these developments you're seeing on waterfronts and Ossing and the stuff that they're all along the place, Kingston, whatever, and what they want to propose in Nyack, what they have in Pyramont. You're talking about some like real worries about anyone that's got that riverfront property. Yep. Probably with climate change, but we're talking about in the short term. Right. And it actually could, making it, things worse. Yeah, like a one-time event, just right. wiping out like that. All that whole. Sure. You talk Hoboken and Newburgh and all these places that have been developing these really nice like restaurant rows out on the water sure. and these strips of like retail and everything. And it's like, wow, there's nothing between us and this river was just going to, like, crest and just right. come aboard. And, Cliff, just so we know, the walls that are being proposed, I know there's a couple different plans being proposed. Right. We're really just talking about, like, lower Manhattan, right? I mean, is that where is that where the walls would go up and protect? Uh, some of them would be in lower Manhattan. Some of them would be on the East River or the, you know, Harlem River areas like that. Oh, where they Park were, Avenue. They were protect, <laughs> depending on the alternatives, they would protect basically Manhattan, parts of Queens, parts of Brooklyn in different ways. When I look at it, and I am not an engineer, so if you're north of the Throgs Neck Bridge, you're not being protected as far as I can tell. That goes up towards the right. sound, right? Precisely. So you're not you're not really being protected because the, there's a barrier there. So it's protecting the area. It's protecting the harbor. It's protecting our financial center. It's yeah. protecting. As somebody said in one of the, actually in two of the times that I've spoken, it's protecting the money. Right. It, but anyway, we have to have something that's going to protect the entire region. There is an alternative called Alternative Five, which is several uh, land-based levees, berms, walls, so forth, that it's not perfect whatsoever. And a lot of it's just this one area in Manhattan called the Big U that would protect the land in, in lower Manhattan. But there'd be other there'd be other walls, levees, berms. So, and this would actually be cheaper than the, than the barriers. But why not have this everywhere? Because this would not only protect from a storm surge, but if you have something on land... It would eventually protect from sea level rise because you could build on right. and on on top of walls. Right. I think of it as like Legos, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, you just is keep there, stacking on the you top. You just keep you, stacking you up. It, you build it with right. like some big like so, screws pointing up, right. and then you screw on and, to the lid. And we don't really have a choice. No. And so, you know, the question is going to be how the resources are spread around. But, you know, if you, know, if you try to make a lemonade out of lemons – 
you know, you can see the upside. You have lots of great jobs, and they're all over the place. I mean, it, it would be up and sure. down and to the to the east and, you know, and all the way out, you know, all the way down the shore. And, and it's vitally necessary. This is stuff that we need to be doing anyway. just seems like we need the political will now, or we need maybe the public awareness now. Yes, and uh, we've been given a little bit of a reprieve by the Army Corps of Engineers, which is proposing these. If you need more information about this and you just don't want to hear me talk about it, you go to riverkeeper.org slash barriers. And the deadline for public comment was on September 20th. For the barriers, yeah. For the barriers. And now it has been extended to November 5th. Mm -hmm. So you could send your own email to -hmm. them. Or you can go to Riverkeeper and we'll have a, a form, which we don't suggest that you just use what we say. Right. Use it for reference and make your own changes to it. And you can make a comment. So far, through Riverkeeper, we've had thousands of people that have commented. I know some of the other environmental advocates in New York State have actually done a very good job. We, uh, we had 10,000 for the Anchorages issue. Right. I'm, I'm hoping we get the same. I remember there was a Anchorages. big public comment output outpouring for the fracking issue a couple of years ago. Yeah. That is good. I know on the Department of Education, when they have public comment, they get like 1,800 comments. You don't know, but you know, a lot of those are, you know, could be astroturf groups. I mean, I, I don't hope there's anybody that's, you know, banking on New York getting completely flooded and, and, and right. uh, investing against us. But I think there is a lot of apathy out there and there's a lot of people that just think that somebody else is going to handle it. What, what makes this different is that when you, when you talk about public comment things for stuff that affects people and affects people's livelihoods, so there may be teachers or education advocates or, or charter school advocates that might talk about an issue in mm-hmm. education. Well, you don't really have that for the river. Except for you have a, you know, we have like 30-some people at Riverkeeper, and then there's Clearwater that's got a dozen or so, maybe 15 or 20 people, groups like Scenic Hudson. And we're talking about, we're like 100 people all together right. between the, these three environmental groups, environmental advocates, let's add tech on another 10. The river does not have a voice. The only advocate it has is the people that live near it. So w- what you're doing is you're advocating for something that is it's different. It's, it's vital, but it's also something that is it's mutant itself. The way I look at the river is it, it is in itself, it's a, it's a living thing. It, it supports so much life. I mean, I know people think it's a very dirty river, but but it's improving. The New York Harbor right now is the cleanest it's been in 110 years. We're making headway. There was just an oyster found uh, right off Manhattan that was the size that was almost nine inches big. It was really? huge. It was like the size of a foot. Wow. These things are these good things are happening to the river right now. We're starting to see some fish come back. Not all of them. Not the shad haven't come back. A few others uh, bunker are so low, but. We're starting to see a comeback of, of the sturgeon, a few uh, striped bass. We've made progress since 50-some years that these advocacy groups for the river started. Now, what I want to say is that these storm surge barriers would kill all of it because there would be no life in the river. You're no longer going to be by a river. You're going to be by a, a, tub. a tub, a tub of our own dirt, our own waste, our own contaminants. And it's not only human waste. You know, a lot of the, you know, there's CAFOs, there's dairy farms up north Mm -hmm. that, you know, you're going to start, we're going to like be, if you sail, if you boat, if you kayak, if you enjoy recreating on the river in any way, that's going to be over. And it could be over real soon. 
So explain to people like me who don't who don't really know what what is happening now to all of the uh, solid waste. Where does it go right now? Which solid waste? Well, the let's say the five boroughs. You know, maybe even our region. I know that there are big boats that yeah. that transport it, and there's big collection stations, right? The one in Harlem and the one in Brooklyn. What happens then now? That all goes to like a treatment and, and it all gets processed and through dispersal it goes back into the water eventually? Uh, which waste are you talking about though? Well, the, the, the human waste, everybody's flushing the toilet. Well, right? no, uh, of course, when you have a wastewater treatment plant, oh, you're talking about that waste, okay? I thought you were talking about garbage for a second there. Okay. Uh, wastewater treatment plants are very complex. I've toured several of them. The most recent one I toured was a Westchester plant that was uh, in Austin, a very sophisticated, beautiful plant. And basically, when they treat the waste, they take out the solids. Mm-hmm. The solids are moved out. Depending on the plant, I mean, sometimes these, these solids are removed, they're disinfected, mm-hmm. and they're pulled out. The water itself is treated uh, in many different ways. But basically, the water that goes in there should be free. They use all sorts of different methods by, you know, they put I know pathogens. That. They put things in that uh, right, counter the, the pathogens. Right, I know there's so also forth. reverse osmosis. Right. reverse osmosis, they use that as well. And they put the water back in the river. But the solid matter... And I think it depends on the plant. Depends on where they're where they are. Some of this stuff has been used in the past for, for things like fertilizer. Yeah. Sometimes it's it's shipped out. I mean, this is organic matter. This yeah. is actually much yeah, better it's bi- than plastic. It's biofuel for, of right. some sort. I mean, um, I, I know the Chinese used to they used to buy our garbage for years and years. I don't know if they still are, and they were happy. Right. To ship it off overseas and either a combination of salvage it or burn it, you know, right. and they don't have the same environmental regulations. And you would be shocked, by the way, is that the compactness of the once it becomes solid, when it's still, it's turned into bricks, isn't it? It's like bricks, <laughs> like solid. And, and I and I've been there. I've seen it. So the the disposal of that, I'm not entirely aware of all the different methods. I, I guess this depends on municipality and regions right, right. Uh, and so forth. I do know that um, with a lot of times with the uh, the farms, the, the big factory farms that are up north that are like on the Hudson River in Columbia County up north there, they've got a lot of dairy farms up there. There's a lot of that waste is they use it for fertilizer. They put it right on the property sometimes mm-hmm. and they put it on the wintertime. The big problem with that is a lot, you put it back on there thinking that you're going to fertilize your fields fields, and what happens is it gets runoff and it gets in the waterways right, right. it gets in it gets in the tributary it gets in a yeah. creek and then it gets in a river and this stuff becomes the, all this nitrogen and phosphorus and all these different uh nutrients get in there and then you start having problems with the green blue algae right. which and is we, toxic and, and we sp- i remember years ago we sp- we actually spoke to some upstate farmers that were saying that you do need to build up some of the land masses so that there's a, a lot more controlled flow when there's just natural rain or when there is flooding right. you know so that it doesn't so that the fields are protected because it's not just the livelihoods for those farmers up there that's the food we eat and that's the commerce for the right. whole region and that's the like the lifeblood of upstate so you know i remember when we were recovering from a couple of uh, devastating storms that they were complaining that there was not equitable funding and that the politicians weren't securing enough funding for them to build up those, I guess, uh, walls or, you know, on those valleys so that there was controlled floodplains and it wasn't just 
going all over the fields, you know, that we all, that everybody's using to, for agriculture. And so, you know, it's, it's really interesting when you realize how everything is just so connected and how everything is so fragile in the face of these really devastating storms where water just comes in. It might not be a hurricane. It might just be a big water dump. It might just be like five days of heavy rain, or it could be anything else. It could be seismic activity, you know, you name it. And we are supposed to be advanced enough in 2018 to prepare for these things right. ahead of time and we're not doing what we need to be we doing. haven't had the foresight and let me just say a few things is that like with the amount of organic material which is all compostable mm-hmm. you can we don't have enough composting facilities to take care That's one thing, of yeah. this we need to build these facilities we need to build they do in Vermont. Well, they, they do. They do in some areas, but yeah. we, but as a nation, as a whole, right. we don't know what to do with our own shit. Excuse my <laughs> French. That's okay. Okay, but the French know what they're doing with their own shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but you know, to get there is that we never thought out waste in this country. Waste. Let's talk about everything from plastics to paper, and even like now we're recycling. You know, the, all this plastic recycling. We have this huge Pacific garbage patch that's the size of the state of Texas, and then we got another one that's in the Atlantic right now. It's because we don't know what we're doing with our waste and stuff. This is just the stuff that blows off into blows off a truck or, or goes out yeah, of the storm drain. They're hanging these, in the these trees. Are, this, this stuff is the stuff that is like the the leftover thing, the 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 gum wrapper that got thrown down a storm drain, the water bottle that somebody put in there. That's the oh, stuff my you wife, put in there. My wife can't bring home a green pepper from the store without getting a little bag and put the little bag in a big bag right. and the big bag. And, and you don't need this stuff. <laughs> you don't need this because what we're doing is think of like if that's just a very small percentage that is going into all these patches. Yeah. And then you're, you see these pictures of these islands with beaches devastated for miles and miles where it's nothing but plastic waste. Think of the stuff that actually we're, that we're trying to recycle. And now the Chinese aren't even taking our plastics right now. We're cut off. Yeah. Plus we're in the middle of a, we don't an have ongoing a, trade We don't war, have our own facilities. Yeah. We need, we need, we need to look at it. And, and some European states have this. They've banned plastic bags. You have to take your groceries home just like a cardboard box or you have to bring right. something. And that's it. Otherwise, you're out of luck. If you haven't figured out, I mean, you know, put it in your hat. I mean, you know, go home with it one way or the other. It's something that you would hope that the next generations are not only thinking about, but the way that, I guess, higher education is being structured is, like, designed specifically to deal with these problems and admit students in to say, okay, you know, you're going to be a generation of scientists, engineers, uh, researchers that are going to have to deal with this problem, whether you like it or not, because otherwise... We can't sustain it like this. We have to find a way to become a resilient society. A sustainable, resilient society. When I say sustain, I, I use the word resilient because I'm talking about health care and all sorts of other issues. We have to become resilient. We've always been profit-motivated and not people-oriented. And this has got to change, whether it's education, health care, the environment, social justice. We have to become resilient, and we have to become fair, and we have to build a society around that. That's, I think, what's most important. Yeah, we just see this in politics. You know, things move at a snail's pace. Right. Part of the, this last primary we saw where Andrew Cuomo is running against a progressive challenger, and she was trying to push him. We did see Andrew Cuomo move. He canceled a, a pipeline out in Rockaway, the Rockaway Pipeline. And then we saw for a minute there, there was some discussion about banning plastic bags in the state. But to my best memory, I think that all fell apart the last second, and here we 
are, you know, you go IDC, to see maybe I don't know. <laughs> we go we go I don't to know. I don't know anything about politics. Well, you know, we, we might see a new <laughs> state Senate, you know, putting pressure. But that's what happens, you know, and sometimes it's the winner that's just mm-hmm. recognizing yep. You know, an issue and take it away from a challenger for the right. next time. Okay. But, you know, something like plastic bags, it is so doable. We could snap our fingers and ban plastic bags. And the world would be able to get their tomatoes home from the car. It, you know, we would figure something else out, but we would be reducing all that waste, right? And we'd also be becoming more aware of, of the waste that we produce at the same time. And straws, too, which is another subject yes. which I could talk about later on. <laughs> For a future date. Yeah. Right. And so we will be wrapping the show up. You can tune in next week at Tuesday, and we'll be here from 7 to 8. We want to thank uh, Rockland World Radio and Richard Quinn. Here he is right here. Oh, with an axe in his hand. There he is. We're, we're just going to wrap up for the day. You can catch us online anytime at newyorkupdate.org. You can catch our tweets at UpdateNY. And you can catch us on Facebook. And you can catch us right here at rocklandworldradio.com. Thanks, for Richard, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to the new sound of Rockland. Rocklandworldradio.com. Exciting online TV and radio. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration?